This is the Lit Fantastics, a podcast series about authors and their obsessions. I'm your host, Neil Aiken. In this episode, I talk with Janine Hall Gailey, former poet laureate of Redmond, Washington, and author of Becoming the Villainess. She returns to the floating world, Unexpected Fevers, The Robot Scientist's Daughter, and Field Guide to the End of the World. What I found really interesting in this conversation is the way in which Janine's obsession with the end of the world and various forms of apocalypse really turn into a discussion about dystopia and in some sense harken back to the origins of the word apocalypse. In its Greek, uh, a revelation, an unveiling, and how it somehow suggests who we really are when it comes down to the end of the world. I asked Janine where this obsession with apocalypse comes from, and this is how she responds. You know, right after 2012, that whole year with the, the world's going to end, all those movies, you know, the 2012 movie that came out. Oh, the, the Mayan apocalypse, right? Mayan apocalypse, exactly. And then, you know, I noticed in the news there was a lot of talk about solar flares and asteroids even after that mm-hmm. um, with a very kind of not um, hysterical tone, but a sort of, it was strange, right? Like even in the news there were these science articles that were very apocalypse and mm. the, the plagues and all this stuff. And remember that article that was about the government preparing for a zombie apocalypse and there was a site you could go to that the government was hosting? It was, so that sort of stuff started piquing my interest because, of course, I'd been writing about uh, the government and the robot scientist's daughter, right, with Oak, Ridge, um, Oak Ridge's nuclear facilities and the men in black suits, you know, and all that stuff. So I think it sort of went with that mood. And then, of course, the Hunger Games and The Giver and The Maze Runner and 1,000 other YA dystopias, right, that came out at that Mm -hmm. same time. I mean, it definitely feels like that we're in a moment. I mean, this this interview was kind of in the plans before for other things started under, you know, happening around us. Um, Yeah, I mean, we kind of live in... As they say, like New Testament language, we live in perilous times. It's really, you know, the the moon is turning red and the sky is falling. And uh, every time you read the news, there's some horrible new atrocity or, you know, weather event or something that um, I feel like there's a very anxious feeling among humanity mm-hmm. at this time. You know, not just here, but, you know, look at the Brexit and what's going on in Russia and China. So you, you just look at all these things and say, what is really going on? in the culture, in the subconscious, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's really why I started writing it. You know, this, this obviously is a, an obsession that's spilling over and, in fact, you know, gave birth to a whole book, right? Yeah, um, it ended up becoming a, what became a field guide to the end of the world. And when I started out writing it, you know, they were just kind of funny poems. I wrote one about, I had seen a movie called Zombie Stripper Clones, and I wrote a poem about that and, you know, wrote a little bit about Independence Day, you know, the terrible movie Independence Day, and... You know, mm-hmm. just kind of was writing these lighter, funnier poems, and then I noticed, hey, this is maybe, you know, hooked into some more serious subject matter, so I just kept writing about it. And uh, and then I had started having some health crises in the last couple of years, and I think that also tied into it a little bit. You know, um, a health crisis can feel like your personal end of the world, right? So, yeah. um, so while I was dealing with that stuff, I was kind of writing about it in a, in a bigger way, right? Uh, kind of expanding it out, you know, from my own bodies, malfunctions to the universe, right? So, Yeah, it's interesting how that, that 
seems to happen to a lot of us. I, I mean, when I was working on my first book, I think I went into the experience of writing about exile and displacement partly from a, a more critical lens. Um, you know, it was a personal sort of experience of, of having been uprooted and moved many, many different times, you know, growing up um, and living around the world in different spaces um, in different communities. So I, I kind of felt, you know, this constant displacement. So I kind of connected with the idea of exile. But then um, discovering it on a much more personal and, and familial level, and I guess metaphysical and spiritual level in the sense of, you know, as I was working on the book, I saw more and more of my close friends and family members passing away and this idea of an exile and separation from, from the mortal world. Um, also was kind of becoming more evident that what I was writing about was something even bigger than sort of geography and, and space. Yeah, but. exactly. Well, I think that, I think that all of, uh, maybe all poets do that. You know, we, we can't help it. We're just accidentally putting ourselves into our books, even when we don't mean to. Yeah. Even when we set out, you know, we start off with the project and we say, this will be the book that, that lets me right. have a break from dealing with personal stuff. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and we can't avoid well, it. And I have all these poems. You know, most of my books have been persona poetry. Most of my first uh, four books were persona. Mm -hmm. And this one is um, the first one in which a persona was invented. So she's sort of um, a survivor of a nuclear attack or plagues. It's never really specified. And she kind of goes around the world trying to find other people and trying to connect to people that she loves. And and of course, ends up not finding them. But um, but it was sort of fun. It was almost like writing science fiction this time, mm, which was mm. a fun a fun little project, uh, kind of taking persona to the next level. I, I was I was about to ask if if this is one particular apocalypse, or is there are there a series of apocalyptic um, yeah, events that that, well, that kind of recur in the book? Refer to different things. So there's you know definitely talk of like patient zeros and plagues, and there's also. Asteroids, I think, are definitely mentioned more than once. Um, nuclear attack. Um, you know, and I had been writing in my previous book, in Robot Scientist Daughter, about Fukushima, which really um, had a big impact on me. I had some friends that lived over um, near where the disaster was. And mm -hmm. um, at, when it happened, I just, um, you know, really was emotionally um, moved uh, to write about it. And, uh, and that, that sort of felt apocalyptic to me as well. It still kind of does. You know, the fact that all these people on the West Coast were like, well, this is going to increase our chances of getting cancer. And they were accusing the Japanese government at the time of, of covering things up. And now the Japanese government has apologized for doing exactly that. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, the leak has never really been sealed. They're, they're still dumping radioactive water into the ocean. So, you know, that kind of thing. I think that also kind of affected what I ended up I think there are still a couple of Fukushima poems in this book because it kind of spilled over that. Mm. Um, that feeling that some of this stuff is already happening, you know, that it's not an imagination or, or science fiction, it's, it's now. Yeah, when, when sci-fi bleeds into now and we, we have, yeah, it, it's, it is, it, it is troubling. And like, like you were saying, we look at film, we look at what's popular in terms of the stories that we're told. And there definitely seems to be a, a healthy appetite or unhealthy appetite either way. Um, it makes me worry because I, yeah. I see the kids today, literally if I watched everything that teens today are supposed to be watching, all these young adult movies, I would, for one, never, never, ever trust an adult because they are definitely trying to kill you. They are always trying to kill you and steal your blood or, you know, put you through a maze or something, right? 
They're, they always have some nefarious plot in the background. And then the other thing is that they, they're just so little hope in these stories. You know, it's like, well, the one kid might be able to save humanity and continue survival, but really that's all, all they're hoping for. They're not even hoping for, like, a good future. They're just hoping to survive. Are, are, there, are there hopeful apocalyptic stories that you've run into? I, when I was writing, I tried to purposely um, keep it a little lighter and funnier. Like Martha Stewart shows up and Ida Garten and HGTV magazine, um, anthropology magazine. So the models in the anthropology magazine are looking out into the sunset at the apocalypse. You know, So I'm, I tried to kind of keep the pop culture references in there and keep it a little lighter because I didn't want it to be an overwhelmingly hope. I feel like there's enough hopelessness out there already, <laughs> you know? Right. You know, when, when it was the 80s and we had a ton of apocalypse, I, you know, I'm, <clears throat> I'm 43, so uh, the stuff I grew up with was written in the 70s and 80s, the youth culture stuff, and there was a lot of nuclear apocalypse, but it was much more hopeful. You know, the kids would end up saving the world and everything would go back to normal, and there was kind of a sense that even though things were bad, that they could fix things. And I feel like that's not there necessarily in the newer, in the newer dystopias. There's really not that narrative anymore. I mean, well, you know I, I, was I was watching The Last Ship um, a couple weeks ago, that TV series. And, yeah. you know, it, it has both tensions. There's a part of some of the tone definitely feels like 1980s, you know, faith in, in sort of the ability of, of America as a nation to rebuild itself. And yet there's a lot of stuff that, that kind of works against it. Well, think about, okay, so think about this. So we think about um, Miyazaki's movies, right? So the one I remember seeing first when I was a kid, maybe 10, was um, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Mm -hmm. She stops a war. She stops nature from rebelling against humanity. I mean, really, it's a very hopeful message. Even though Nausicaa has to sacrifice herself to do it, it's, the message is ultimately hopeful, I think. Mm. So I just don't see that happening. I think that the movies and the books have gotten... So the, the point is, and in Hunger Games, you know, basically at the end of the book, she's a PSTD victim who isn't doing much. She's not a general. She's not a leader. She's, she's hiding out, you mm -hmm. know, which is, um, it's not necessarily the message you'd want to give to young people. Divergent. I mean, I was just thinking like, boy, they, they really are pretty grim. They're pretty grim narratives. Yeah. I, I mean, is it a cultural thing? If we go outside of American culture, do we find more hope in other cultures? Or are, are we just experiencing sort of a worldwide moment of anxiety about and uncertainty about where we are and what, we're, what we'll be able to do next? Yeah, I think, I think if you watch what's happening in Europe, you know, there's a disturbing movement to the right wing again. Um, mm -hmm. Anti-Semitism is on the rise, you know, definitely anti-immigrant. That seems very pre-World War to me it does it, it, it's very scary to watch that because the rhetoric has returned a lot of the rhetoric of the past is coming back it's, it's very i think it's alarming if you're a student of history because you're like this is exactly what people were saying right before hitler and stalin and all those guys right came to power so i'm hoping that's not what's happening but if you look at economics too you know i've been really interested in our economics lately i've never literally in my life been interested in economics but i've been really reading financial news because it seems like the economy is set up exactly the same way it was right before World War II mm. as well, except Germany's a lot stronger. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad <laughs> thing, but, you know, it's sort, of, it's sort of interesting. So, you know, Russia, because of the oil crisis, has lost a lot of money, and a lot of these countries are struggling. And, you know, I think watching Britain's anger at being part of the EU was really strange. I mean, I think for us, you know, over here in America, we were like, 
Why are they so angry? What's this really about? And, and you know, with them, um, you know, I hate to bring up politics here, but, you know, Donald Trump and stuff, what's his appeal? You know, his appeal is really kind of fear-mongering, I think. And Russia, you know, becoming very nationalistic again, you think, is this a return to the situation we had pre-war? And if so, um, you know, that's a little, that's a little alarming. Mm-hmm. So, so what's to be done? I mean, are there other stories that we can tell, or are there, are there ways in which we can address this? I mean, I, mean I, I think that's a really good question, and sometimes I think that's what um, poetry is supposed to be for. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're supposed to be the—we poets, we're supposed to be the ones who show people, hey, there's a different way to be, or maybe pointing out—even just pointing out the realities of what's going on now, you know, uh, making people think about that stuff. It's sort of our job— you know, not to hit people over the head with didacticism, but at least to say, hey, maybe there are some other options um, besides war, besides hate, besides um, destruction of the environment, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what are ways that we can set this up for the future to be better? And uh, I, think, I think that's what I was trying to write about in this book, that I was trying to get to this, to a level of hopefulness, even though I myself didn't know where the hope was going to come from necessarily. Have something to say or a guest to recommend? Perhaps you yourself would like to be a guest on The Lit Fantastic. You can reach us by email at contact at thelitfantastic.com or send us a message via Facebook or tag us on Twitter. We'll get back to you. So, so having finished this particular project, what do you see next? Um, is there is there a new obsession on the on the horizon, or is this obsession feeding into a, you know, morphing into something slightly different but still connected? Yeah, there, there's been I've been writing a bunch of new. I got a recent um, cancer diagnosis, so I've been writing you know a little bit about that and about I think the obsession with apocalypse has sort of turned into poems about survival in the face of any kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, struggle, and I also started writing these poems about luck. What did luck mean? What you know? Because sometimes people will say, "Oh, what bad luck?" And I'm like, "Well, it's sort of you know, we're all mortal. You know, that's not really luck or not luck, right?" So right, right. So I started writing about what does you know what lucky charms mean, or what um, the the feeling of being lucky or faded or any of those things. Um, so I started writing a little bit about that as well. What What's been your most interesting discovery as you've done that research? Once again, you know, the poems um, aren't all as sad as you would think. I, I think you, you get these feelings that, oh, you need to exercise, you know, poetry should be sad, poetry about these subject matters should be sad, but um, I end up writing funny poems about really dark subjects. It's an odd trait, I think. Well, I, uh, I think it goes back to the, the question of survival. I think it is sort of a very human, um, maybe maybe it's particularly American, but I think most, most people... Um, when we confront things that are difficult or hard or, or sad, there's a part of us that wants to respond with humor. And, I mean, I, of course, it's, a, it's a definitely a coping mechanism that I have in real life and it also shows up in my poetry. You know, it just, mm. I, I'm not a fan of being maudlin or um, it doesn't seem to do any good to sit around feeling sorry for yourself or even in your poems, you know, gosh, you know, if you have to read another sad poem about whatever, you're just going to, you know, you're going to bang your head against a wall. So... I think that um, I sort of, I try to write in that direction as well, but I, I try to inject some 
humor or at least um, whimsy into the situations that are at hand, um, which which I hope is good. Uh, I hope it's useful for other people as well. Um, that's my hope anyway. Yeah, I, I think it's it's necessary because you're right. I mean, if we if we let ourselves drown in, in just sort of the, the one notedness of, of um, you know, despair and sadness and, and you know, pain, then, then I think we miss out, right? I mean, yeah, that, that humor... Fun that way, right? I mean, it's just not a fun way to approach reality. And, I mean, this is a big thing, I think, in the book about apocalypse, is how, how can we help each other, mm-hmm. right, survive these difficult times? And... And so how, how can you do that? You know, I, I joke in the poems a little bit about stockpiling things, Cipro and beef jerky, and mm-hmm. I think little Debbie snack cakes show up somewhere. But some of these survivors are kind of going around looting other homes, right, and figuring out stuff that helps them survive and uh, banding together and uh, turning spiritual. There's a couple poems about spirituality, people seeking salvation, you know, at the end. And so I think there's this turn towards what can we do to help each other out? Right. Um, yeah. I think it's, I mean, when you read the news today, you think, you know, if, if more people were thinking about others and, and how to help them, uh, maybe we would not have quite as many problems. Uh, you know, if we can turn and have empathy for the other, turn and think about, um, you know, how, how something affects the rest of the world, then maybe we have a more positive impact on it, you know? Not to be all, you know, whatever, <laughs> Pollyanna-ish, but it, it's, it's true, right? Like, if we... If we reach out to others, we're probably going to do uh, more good than if we just think about ourselves. Yeah, I, I think so. I definitely agree. I, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about you know sort of some of the advice that they give people when they're uh, walking a wire, like a a high wire, right? Yeah. Um, if you fixate on your current footing, where you're standing right now, you'll actually become more unstable. <laughs> yes. And if like you that. look ahead at where you want to be. And project outwards, then you're more likely to arrive at your destination. I think that's, I think that's really true, and I think that's even true. You know, I was thinking about uh, being hospitalized. I've been hospitalized a bunch in the last couple of years, and um, you know, there's this one thing you can do where you just kind of close down, right? And you're all about your own comfort, which is probably not at a high level when you're in the hospital. But then I always notice people who are worse off, right? Like, hey, there's an elderly person left in a wheelchair in a back room, or you know, there's a little kid going through the same tests and stuff that I am and how much worse that must be for them because they're scared, they don't understand the science behind it. And, you know, I think that that act of empathy uh, when we're in those kind of emergency situations is, you know, it's it's the good part of being human. It, it is. And I, I think, like, in even, um, you know, when you've been through these experiences, you know, those experiences, as painful as they may be, are also sort of the beginnings of, um, like you say, an empathy that, that creates opportunities to, to serve others around us. We're rarely the only people suffering, you know? Like, yeah. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not that Twilight Zone story where there's one person appointed to suffer for everyone. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And I think, I think that, that seeking out of connection with other people, that's, it's one of the saving graces. And this character I kind of created... The survivor character, it's all she does, right, is, is try to reach out to other people even though she's not having much success. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's that loneliness and that feeling of, of wanting a connection uh, in those times of crisis that, um, you know, may, may provide hope, right? That, that's my idea is that, that that is what provides us hope and what keeps us going. So what are some of your recommendations for, for people that, um, 
if you were to recommend, here's a good apocalyptic or dystopic uh, story to turn to that you think does something a little bit different that's worth examining. Yeah, you know, I'm a huge, okay, so obviously I'm a huge Miyazaki fan, uh, Nausicaa, and um, gosh, you know, the other one, I really love Princess Mononoke, but it's sort of darker in tone, don't you think, than Nausicaa? Yeah, yeah, I think so too, yeah. So Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind by Miyazaki, for sure, movie and book, and then I love Madeline Lingle, I mean, especially if you're 12 or 13, uh, I think the Wrinkle in Time trilogy is maybe, I mean... Some of it seems really stilted and um, 70s-ish now mm-hmm. when we read it. but um, And then, of course, I love the Dragonflight series by Anne McCaffrey, another mm. great uh, female hero who uses time travel. To say, time travel's a big thing uh, for me. I love time travel stories, so I think Anne McCaffrey did those really well. And, uh, you know, I, I really did enjoy The Hunger Games. I just was a little bit distraught at, um, at Katniss's end. I felt like the author could have worked harder Mm-hmm. to get the heroine to a place that would have been more satisfying. Yeah, but what do I know? I didn't make a million dollars from my book. So yeah. she must be doing something people like. But And then uh, you know, of all the zombie, I was trying to think um, the two zombie movies I like the best are Warm Bodies and Zombieland, mm. which are, one is romantic uh, and one is just really funny. So I, I think that those takes on zombies. I mean, you can watch um, The Walking Dead all you want, but it's just a little grim, I think. And, you know, I really loved Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you know, when I was younger, and I still recommend it to people because I think there's very few narratives that are as hopeful. I mean, she literally comes back from the dead. She saves humanity two or three times. It's (laughs) it's really a story of of success and survival that I think is very overall upbeat, even though she has a lot of bad stuff happen to her, Mm -hmm. including death, right? Oh, the other two people who are really into this apocalypse stuff who are older um, would be Rod Serling, you know, the mm-hmm. um, author of all those Twilight Zone, the original Twilight Zones back in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Some fantastic apocalypse scenarios there. And, um, of course, Ray Bradbury, who I think was really influential on our generation. Um, I think you're a little younger than me. But I, but I don't I, think Ray I, I am not much. Li- I'm one year younger than you. So. Oh, okay. All right. Well, you know. uh, so like the Illustrated Man and um, all these kinds of stories, um, Fahrenheit 451, where all the books are burning, you know, mm-hmm. all these where he has kind of people on Prozac listening to iTunes. I mean, you realize when you go back and read Fahrenheit 451, you realize he's inventing stuff that actually exists now. The wall wall flat screen TVs are in there, right? Yeah, yeah. And that uh, she's listening to earbuds. You know, the wife, the kind of checked out wife is on some kind of Prozac, a happy pill, right? And she has earbuds in her ears and she's always listening to something. So I was thinking, wow, that guy was really, he's really prescient. I, mean, I guess everybody says that about Ray Bradbury. But I think he was a big influence on, on us as well. And don't you think his apocalyptic scenarios were a little bit more upbeat? Maybe a little bit. A little bit. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> Twilight Zone definitely was not. I think Twilight Zone was very dark. <laughs> yes, yes. Most of the time it was very, very dark. It's <laughs> so dark. You're like, oh, my God. Oh, oh, come on. The guy does not have a lot of hope for humanity. That, 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 that was not a hopeful show. Entertaining, though. Entertaining. So I, I think at this point, um, I was wondering if you'd like to share with us a couple poems. Yeah, let me read you a couple. Uh, one is kind of sad and one is kind of hopeful. I think that kind of captures the... I'm not reading any of the funny ones uh, unless you make me. So, um, But there are funny ones in there, I promise. Okay. So, so this book is coming out in September from Moon City Press. It's Field Guide to the End of the World. And this is a poem called, At the End of Time, Wish You Were Here... And uh, all throughout this book, there are these. She's writing these post-apocalypse postcards to people, and this is one of 
one of those kinds of missives. At the end of time, wish you were here. I tried to call you one night, but you were in Thailand. I was listening to Tool's opiate and reading about the particulate levels in China and the meteor that had narrowly missed us yesterday and realized I'd missed the recent eclipse and also missed you. I realized 40 years of learning were leaking through the lesions in my brain, names and faces and memories of us, and I wanted to reassure you that I would still remember you, but then maybe I won't. Like the radioactive water leaking from Fukushima, burning the algae and sea lions, nature takes what it wants from us. And what have we learned that will do us any good, standing here on the brink of fire and flame, of disaster, of zombie movie dystopia and plague and final girls? What will we hold on to? At the end, all we have is ourselves, and sometimes not even that. We must be our own saviors. We must wield the axe against the assassin that is death and time, that is endings and goodbyes, chop down the difficulties and disappointments until the wall is gone, until we are back in the sunlit yards of our childhoods where we could still cry without irony and sweet things still tasted sweet and my limbs didn't end in numbness. Remember that? If we can still remember, then somewhere things must be better than here. So that's sort of the sad one. <laughs> and the other one is a little more hopeful. This is the very last poem in the book called uh, Epilogue, A Story for After. I want to tell you a story about how we survived the end of the world. Crouched around a dying fire, I illustrate with shadow puppets the old, beat-up van, the velocity of water and sky, the unnameable odds against us. What really sells it? The way the ending goes on forever, moon ebbing closer to the mysterious dark, its craggy face calling out, the sky scattered with falling stars, the way objects are nearer than they appear. You next to me, and I remind you, here is where we used to be, here is where we are. I draw a line in the dirt with a fork and draw a picture, a house made of a square and a triangle, a single daisy in the yard, two smiling stick figures. This is what we dreamed of. The day we awaited has arrived. There are no more shotguns or dusty trails lined with diseased corpses. A ship arrives on top of a mountain, heralded by doves. An airplane lands on another planet, seatmates dazed by lack of gravity. We might teach the dragons to dance, learn the alchemy of soil again, rebuild libraries with tales of fantastic voyage. All I need right now is you, the simple weight of your hand, the warmth of your breath, and this last cup of coffee to tell me we are miraculous. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, sure. Yeah. That was wonderful. I, I really enjoyed hearing these and glad that you ended on a hopeful note. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we will turn now to our corners and cry for a little bit. Um, <laughs> well, I have, well, remember, lots of funny poems in this book, I swear. <laughs> I'm not lying to you. <laughs> okay. But it, it sounds like it covers quite the range. And, um, you know, I, I'm excited by this. And Oh, thank you so much. And, and uh, thank you for having me on here. It's been so fun to talk about all this weird stuff. <laughs> It's nice to have a space where we can do this, right? It is. And, you know, we don't get enough spaces, especially in poetry. Sometimes poetry can feel so stuffy and um, unrelaxed. And this, is, this has been really great. Thanks again. And uh, we'll, be, we'll be hopefully hearing from you again soon. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for having me on the show. That was poet and author Janine Hall-Gailey. For more information about her books and upcoming projects, you can visit her online at her website, www.webbish6.com. That's webbish, W-E-B-B-I-S-H, number six. 
or follow her on Twitter at Webbish6. You've been listening to The Lit Fantastic, a production of KBOO Community Radio. Special thanks to freemusicarchive.org for the music in this episode and to our producer, Jenna Yokoyama. To find out more about our podcast series, visit our website, www.thelitfantastic.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Neil Aiken. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.